Hello, I am Sam Eamon, and this is the 30th episode of The Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Today we'll be discussing Mustafa Çotoy, the imperialist boogeyman from Turkestan. Did you know we have a Patreon? And if you sign up now, you can listen to this and all future episodes before anyone else. You'll also get access to awesome perks, such as book reviews, our monthly history club, where we discuss all things books, articles, podcasts, etc., your name read at the end of every episode, and other cool perks. Your support will go towards making this channel better and enable us to, to pay a web designer to make our website look better, more books, obviously and also allow us to pay independent researchers who want to help us with our episodes. So please, join now. The link is in the description. And now, on to our Making History segment. First, if you are not yet fully vaccinated, get your vaccine now. If you are fully vaccinated but know someone who isn't, help them get vaccinated. Offer to watch their kids, cover their shift, drive them to the location. However you can help, help them. The Delta variant is sweeping across the world right now. We are probably going to face a third or fourth shutdown in the fall. Um, and the pandemic isn't over. No matter what anyone tells you, it's not over. It's getting worse. And it's not going to be over until people start wearing masks, return to social distancing, and get the vaccine. Second, if you are in Chicago, then you have reason to celebrate because ECPS passed. This is the nation's strongest and most progressive civilian oversight ordinance. This is a historic win that was possible only because of the hard work of activists all over the city and proves that when people mobilize, they can make a difference. This is the first step towards achieving direct community control over police. The next step is to get a public referendum to expand the committee's powers. Because as I'm sure you all know, to get this thing passed, compromises had to be made. And so one of them is that the members are appointed by the mayor. But if we did this referendum, we can expand it to an actual city election, which was the original idea. ECPS passing is the first hurdle. The second hurdle that we need your help on is um, getting a referendum on the on the ballot. I will share more info once the Chicago Alliance and their other partners um, release their plans on how to do that. But while we're waiting for that, we can turn our attention to the defund CPD campaign. Because um, activists in Chicago are approaching the police violence problem from two different directions. One is the Chicago police have a very strong relationship with the mayor particularly the mayor and with City Hall. And so the idea of ECPS came out of GAPA and CPAC, which were both different ordinances to do the same thing, take community, take community control over the police back from City Hall. So that is one approach, right? The other approach is taking the money away from the police. So civilians have more control over how police are structured and how they can be punished. And then we have this other campaign that takes money away from the police, and we're getting closer and closer to like just defunding them completely and abolishing the police and creating a system that helps people as opposed to punishes people. So to help achieve that grand vision, the CPD campaign has released four demands. And they're asking us to call, email, visit our alders and the mayor and demand that they meet these demands. So they are, one, fund community resources, infrastructure, and violence interruption jobs by laying off cops. So, you know, if you can fire a teacher, you can fire a cop. Two, not use COVID relief dollars for the Chicago Police Department or banks. 
because I'm not sure if any you know, but last year, at least half of the COVID relief fund that Chicago got went to the police instead of using that relief money to people who actually needed it. Three, cancel the Chicago Police Department contract with the shot spotter and redirect the money to the Peace Book and Community Restoration Ordinance to effectively address gun violence. And a little background on the Peace Book, it was developed by Good Kids Mad City, which is an amazing organization, and you should definitely support it. Four, end all closed-door negotiations with the Fraternal Order of Police. The Fraternal Order of Police is like a corrupt union on steroids. There's a very long history. I um, won't get into it on this podcast, but just Google it. We need to end those closed-door negotiations because oh, it's terrible. This defund CPD campaign has an orientation meeting this Wednesday, July 28th, and there's a march on Thursday, July 29th at 3 p.m. to stop ShotSpotter. Uh, ShotSpotter is a program that is responsible for the killing of Adam Toledo, and it just doesn't do anything, so it needs to go. And then there's a tax banking event for defund CPD on July 29th at 4 p.m. So plenty of ways to help fight for racial and social justice this week. And now it's time to discuss Mustafa Chokwe. If you remember from our last episode, Mustafa Chokwe was the Minister of External Affairs for the Khan Autonomy. And when he wasn't touring Kurdistan trying to raise funds for a struggling government, he was reaching out to other countries to spread awareness of the deteriorating situation in Turkestan. Which makes sense when one considers that Russia was shattered by the rise of the Bolsheviks and engaged in a massive and devastating civil war. Who else were the people of Turkestan supposed to turn to, if not other world powers, when Russia was killing itself and their own neighbors, the Tashkent Soviet, was planning an attack on the autonomous government in Khotan? However, for the Bolsheviks, serving in a government that wasn't communist-sanctioned, and reaching out to, imperial, to quote-unquote imperialists in the middle of an existential crisis was the ultimate betrayal, and so they made Mustafa one of their prime enemies amongst the Turkestani refugees. But who was this guy, and why did the Bolsheviks do so much to discredit him? Mustafa was born in Perovsky, in modern-day Kazakhstan, on December 25, 1890. He was born into an aristocratic family with connections to powerful warlords of the steppe hordes, and maybe the Kiva Khanate itself. Thus, he was able to study at a Kashkent gymnasium before earning a law degree at the University of St. Petersburg. True to other Kazakh activists, such as Alakhan Okihanov, who heavily influenced Mustafa's political development, Mustafa's first foray into reshaping his society was to work within the Muslim faction of the state Duma. This is a different approach from the Jadid activists who focused on the cultural and educational dimensions of activism and social rewiring. Mustafa served as a secretary to the Muslim faction and wrote several speeches for deputies, while also running his own liberal Kazakh newspaper, the Birlik Toy, Banner of Unity. Interestingly, when Mustafa was in Tashkent, he met the Russian opera singer Maria Gorina. Maria was married to a lawyer at the time, but would divorce him and leave her old life behind to marry Mustafa on April 16, 1918. They remained devoted to each other for the rest of their lives, and Maria worked hard to preserve Mustafa's writings and memory after he, when he died in 1941. When the Russian Revolution occurred, Mustafa was in Tashkent and involved with the growing Turkestan autonomy movement. He would sit in the Sheru and take part in the multi-Muslim conferences as the people of Turkestan struggled to establish a government strong enough to weather the storm that was a Russian civil war. Interestingly, despite being involved with the Alesh Orda movement 
and a Cossack himself. Mustafa cho- chose to serve as Minister of External Affairs for the Kokan Autonomy. If we remember correctly, many members of the Alash Order actually returned to the steppe to create the Alash Autonomy, because they felt Cossack interests weren't being heard or represented in Tashkent. To learn more about that, you can listen to our episode on the Russian Civil War and the Alash Order. As minister, Mustafa took part in efforts to raise funds, such as his January 14th trip to fundraise in Antijan, and also raised troops for Khotan's non-existent army. Like many other Khotan ministers, Chokhoi often met disappointment and frustration in carrying out his governmental duties. When Khotan's neighbors, the Tashkent Soviets, sent an army to overthrow the government, Chokhoi fled. He escaped Tashkent to the Ferdana, where he stayed for a few months. Following the fall of the Khotan autonomy, he would write, quote, the core of the autonomists remaining after the defeat at Kokon called upon its supporters to work with existing authorities in order to weaken the hostility directed at the indigenous population by the frontier Soviet regime. This quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, The Politics of Muslim Cultural Reform, which may explain why he initially fled to Moscow to negotiate with the Bolsheviks, where he was arrested by the white general Kolchak as, quote, enemy of the Russian state. He escaped and went to Ashgabat, where, he, where the Russian Mensheviks had just overthrown Soviet power and were setting up their own autonomous government. One of these days, I may do a series on the autonomous governments of the Caucasus because they are just as complicated as the autonomous states of Central Asia. While in Ashgabat, he met Vadim Shaikin, a socialist re- revolutionary lawyer, and together they sent a telegram to the Peace Paris Conference. Committee for the Convocation of the Constituent Assembly of Turkestan, asking for the Congress to recognize Turkestan's unity and its right to be a, quote, free autonomous existence in fraternal friendship with the people of Russia. Telegram went nowhere, but condemned Chokhoi in the eyes of the Bolsheviks as a class traitor willing to sell his own people to capitalists and imperialists. Chokhoi stayed in Ashgabat for two years before fleeing the oncoming Red Army. He eventually resettled in Turkey for a few years before traveling to Paris with help from former president of the Russian provisional government, Alexander Kerensky. While in Paris, Chokhoi would become active in the Russian immigrant circles as a writer of newspapers edited by Kerensky and Milotov. At first, he found a home amongst the Russians, but given his experience during the Civil War and being cut off from his homeland, he grew increasingly anti-Bolshevik and nationalistic in view, and so he found refuge with the Turco-Tartar immigrant community within Europe and Turkey. He associated with another Bolshevik woodyman, known as Ahmed Zeki Veldi Kodin, who I think we mentioned in our Basmachi episode, because he has a long history with the Basmachi, and we'll get into that later. While in exile, Chokhoi published several papers, such as the Yash Turkestan, Yon Turkestan, his own memoirs, and lectured widely. He settled in a village outside of Paris, but traveled throughout Europe, setting himself up as a spokesman for Turkestan. Tensions within the Turkestan immigrant community grew, and eventually Mustafa split from Togan, who seemed to be going down a more pan-Turkic path as opposed to Mustafa's more nationalistic Turkestan-focused approach. Because of who Chokhoi was associating with, his writings, and his outspokenness, he became foreign enemy number one in the mind of the Bolsheviks. Any known or suspected association with him often meant a death sentence for those he left behind in Turkestan. Despite his supposed influence, Chokhoi struggled in exile, trying to get his work published and trying to get the world to notice what was occurring in his homeland. While Chokhoi was able to find other immigrants within Paris and around the world, he was cut off from Turkestan itself. So he didn't really know what was happening on the ground, nor could he really shape events within Turkestan. He ended up being an immigrant that could only speak in situations as they were before he fled, 
unable to connect with the people most affected by the Soviet Union, fighting with other immigrant writers and spokesmen, and talking to a European audience that had long forgotten Turkestan. Chokhoi, like the Kokhan autonomy, was a danger to the Bolsheviks because of what he could have been, or what he represented. He offered another option to disgruntled Turkestani immigrants and citizens of Turkestan. He provided uncensored and uncontrollable critique of a Soviet system the Bolsheviks were struggling to implement within Central Asia, and was connected with many other bodhimen that haunted Bolshevik dreams. While it's questionable what Chokhoi would have achieved Turkestan from Paris, being as disconnected as he was, the fact that he was out there at all was enough for the Bolsheviks. World War II led to the fall of France to the Nazis, and in 1941, they arrested Chokhoi. He was placed in the camp in Kampiege with other Russian immigrants. He was summoned to Berlin to work with other Central Asian POWs brought from the front and create a German Turkestan Legion. This would be the first time Chokhoi spoke to someone from Central Asia since he fled Turkestan. He was astonished by their conditions, but also traumatized by Nazi brutality. He wrote, quote, It is not possible to relate all the various cases of senseless, senseless executions in Debeka. Every time I left the camp, I saw several corpses with smashed skulls. One wonders how much of this is because of the, quote, Asiatic contagion from which the loudspeakers scream every day all over Germany. This quote is from Dr. Khalid's book, Central Asia. He had no sympathy with the Nazis, but understood that a Nazi victory could mean the fall of the Soviet Union. He wrote, quote, Yes, we have no path other than the anti-Soviet path, other than the wish for victory over Soviet Russia and over Soviet Bolshevism. This path, regardless of our will, is laid through Germany, and it is strewn with the corpses of those executed in Debeka. This was a, quote, small and pitiful speculative trade in human misfortune, necessary for national liberation. These quotes are again from Dr. Tully's book, Central Asia. He discussed the idea of a Turkestan legion with the future and the future of Muslim states with Nazi general Alfred Rosenberg, laying down conditions that would save the lives of Muslim Russian POWs. After realizing the Nazis were negotiating in bad faith, he, de he declined to lead the Turkestan legion. Mustafa died on December 27, 1941, supposedly from typhus he contracted while in the Compiège camp. Interestingly, Mustafa would not be the first or last nationalist to flirt with the Nazis. Um, Abraham Stern from the Leahy Gang in what was then the Palestine Mandate had uh, negotiations with the Nazis in an attempt to get the European Jews out of Europe into Israel. You have the IRA example, Sean Russell, James O'Donovan, Eowyn Duffy, who also flirted with fascism. Duffy actually offered troops to Mussolini, I think, during his, his um, Ethiopian campaign, I think it was. To us, I think it seems really weird that people who, quote-unquote, fight for liberation of their people or their state or whatever would then look at the Nazis and just be like, yeah, you know, they seem like reasonable people. They've got their heads on straight. Let's, let's try and negotiate with them. Um, but, you know, then again, I'm not a, not a Republican senator, um, so... Maybe I just don't get the appeal of fascism. Um, but I think the interesting thing that it brings up, and something that we'll maybe do a, a future episode on, is this idea that you have to choose between two devils. So for Chokhoi, it was... I mean, he's very aware about what the Nazis were doing, as we saw in the quotes. Um, but for him, Soviet Union was the worst evil. And, you know, to Chokhoi's credit, he did say no. You know, 
I'm not going to leave this legion, you're not negotiating in good faith. But I think it's interesting to consider that for someone like Chokhoi, Soviet Union and Nazi Germany, two sides the same coin for Stern or even Russell, British Empire, Nazi Germany, two sides the same coin. Um, and I, I don't know if any of them were aware of the extent of the camps. And so it might be, oh, you know, white people are being racist and exterminating whole groups of people shocking right um so i don't know it's interesting and it's definitely something that i think requires an episode on its own um but one that requires a lot of research and needs to be dealt with very delicately um the other interesting thing about chokhoi is that some people are convinced that his death was actually arranged by the nazis and it, it wasn't typhus it was like some type of poisoning um i didn't i didn't see any evidence of this but i think it just it illustrates I think the paranoia of the time and maybe even an attempt to salvage his reputation um, because of what the Bolsheviks did to his reputation, but also this idea of just like even just thinking about negotiating with Nazis. It's, it used to be a bad thing. It used to be frowned. So that is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. You can listen to our full catalog on our website, www.sanswarroom.com, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Please subscribe and leave a review. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at AOA Warfare and on Instagram, Art of Asymmetrical Warfare. Please join our Patreon, as I have a lot of big plans for this podcast in 2021 and beyond, and I can't do it without your support. Until next time, get your vaccine, practice social distancing, wash your hands, and stay safe.